The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor John Bernthal. For the past decade, Bernthal has been making a name for himself in films like Wolf of Wall Street, Fury, Baby Driver, Ford v. Ferrari, and King Richard. For a while there, he seemed destined to become one of those reliably good character actors. You know the type. The ones you instantly recognize and think, oh, okay, we're in good hands here. But in the past few years, Bernthal has officially made the leap to leading man. First with the Punisher series, playing Frank Castle, and now, in 2022, with We Own This City created by David Simon and George Pelicanos. As you may remember, they produced The Wire in the early aughts. Now, 20 years later, they've returned to Baltimore, this time to focus on the city's notoriously corrupt gun task force. The ringleader of this lawless police squad is a man named Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, played by Bernthal. Here's a clip from the trailer of We Own This City, now available on HBO Max. Yeah, we want to run a little hypothetical by you. I said we're on an investigation. We found a big-time drug dealer, a like real fucking monster, right? We, uh, you know, we get wind on where he's keeping his cash. And we actually come upon that cash. It's right there in front of us. We just, you know, we take it. What would you think about that? Everything changed when they came up with that expression, the war on drugs. With the war comes police militarization, the complete gutting of the Fourth Amendment. They put me in a unit made up of a bunch of the biggest crooks in the whole goddamn department. There's all this money to be made, and I'm somehow supposed to be playing by the book with these motherfuckers? In a war, you need warriors. On the ground, get down on the ground! You have enemies. In a war, civilians get hurt and nobody does anything. In a war, you count the bodies, and then you call them victories. The six-episode limited series aired its finale this week, so if you haven't seen We Own This City, you can do so now on HBO Max. 
In keeping with the legacy of The Wire, the show sits at the intersection of journalism, advocacy, and drama. Like any Simon show, it tackles big ideas, this time around the war on drugs, the misinformation crisis, and police corruption. There's an authenticity and rigor to the work that I think made Bernthal uniquely qualified to star in We Own This City. In each role, Bernthal goes the extra mile in his preparation. He's profoundly curious in the people he's playing, so curious, in fact, that he's dedicated part of his life to amplifying the voices of those on the street. On his podcast, Real Ones with John Bernthal, he sits with cops, soldiers, activists, gang members, and first responders. His aim is to help tell the kind of authentic stories we don't hear enough of in the news. Stories of life on the margins, where mistakes are made, crimes are committed, consequences are faced, and hard-fought redemption is possible. So, on today's show, John and I talk about We Own This City, his bifurcated childhood in the DMV, using his aggression for acting, his transformative time in Moscow, the fateful night that changed his course, and how, as a father, he's grappled with these last two brutal weeks in America. Here is John Bernthal. John Bernthal. How are you? Pleasure to meet you. It's really cool to meet you too. How are you feeling? I feel good. I feel good. It's just I, uh, I'm excited. This new show of yours from David Simon, who made, of course, The Wire, is called We Own This City. It's set in a pre and post Freddie Gray Baltimore around the police department's gun task force, which, as you know, was notorious for its widespread corruption. You've often said that you fundamentally believe and pursuing things that scare you. What about Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, the ringleader of this unseemly police force? What about that scared you? What about him scared you? Oh man, so much. Uh, one of the many reasons that I was super excited to do this and why I really went after this, and, and I know it might sound trite, but I would have run through walls to do this, was these are just issues that are super near and dear to my heart. And they're issues I've, for better or worse, had a lot of experience with. What are those issues? Issues of race, issues of policing, issues of police corruption. I feel like right now in this country, you know, we're exploring these issues and the major kind of issues of the day in a super agenda-driven, polarized way. I feel like so much of the discourse today completely lacks nuance. I feel like there's so much flag-waving. And I feel like the only way to really talk about these issues, which is getting harder and harder, is to dive into the wound of the issue and to explore the nuance and the complications and the complexities. And look, and I knew that with David Simon, George Pelicanos, and, and what they did with The Wire and just who they are and how they've done all their work is like, that's what they do. It's this weird kind of genre of journalism entertainment. And what scared me the most is that on the page and in a climate that's so unbelievably anti-cop and coming out of Hollywood, which is so anti-law enforcement right now, and which law enforcement is being held, the, the scrutiny in which law enforcement is held right now is at, I think, the highest point of any apex it's ever been held at. The way that the guy was written, the way that the guy's portrayed by Justin Fenton in his book, and the way that he's basically talked about on the streets of Baltimore is he's just a monster. And the thing that David Simon said to me, you know, when we talked about doing this, can't just make him a monster. Got to figure out a way to make it more than that. And what I found out quickly about Wayne through my research was beyond anything else, man, he was super devoted to his kids and that everyone to a person, cops that he worked with, cops that he got to know really well, whose, whose lives and careers were completely derailed because of their proximity and their friendship with Wayne Every person said about Wayne that he was a devoted dad. And to me, engaging in behavior that had the potentiality to keep you from your kids that you love more than anything in the world. And for me, there's nothing more important to me in the world than my wife and my kids. The crux of that conflict was something that scared the shit out of me. As you run towards this thing, 
we're talking around the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's passing on the heels of these tragic shootings in Buffalo and Texas. And as you mentioned, you've spent a lot of time with police officers, army vets, men and women in the line of duty. How have these experiences informed how you're thinking both about policing in America in this moment, but also this gun culture that we do seem to celebrate? Without a doubt, the relationships that I've been able to make in my career, technical advisors, you, you know, cops, gang members, prisoners, soldiers, tennis coaches, wh whatever that is, I'm enormously grateful and the relationships that I've made are sacred. I think for me, as, as far as your question about policing, these issues are super complicated. And I feel like, unfortunately, there's so much pressure out there to stake a flag, wave it with everything you've got and say, I'm on this side, or this is an anti-police piece, or this is a pro-police piece, or whatever, whatever you want to do. I just know that is like part of the problem. And whenever I get the opportunity to talk to people who have actually been in the valley and who have actually had boots on the ground and have actually walked the walk, what I find is what comes with experience is this unbelievable amount of empathy. The folks that are really like rubbing shoulders, the folks that are really living it in a day-to-day -day level, they can look on the other side and they can find things that they really respect and value in folks. I talk to cops all the time who talk about gang members that they really respect. They talk about qualities in gang members that they say, you know, this guy's a good guy. They also talk about, you know, real evil. They talk about things that they absolutely deplore, but they also talk about cops. They talk about guys on their own side that they really have no respect for. They talk about police brutality and how cowardly that is. And I think the same is true for a lot of the folks that I talk to in the criminal world. You know, they talk about cops that they really respect. And if, if these folks can sit down with each other and again, have empathy for each other, and you realize that there's so much more alike than different, why are we letting these conversations being led by people that live so far apart from each other, have no access to each other? And I really feel like the pundits and the experts and the celebrities and the politicians are the ones that are leading the conversations. And I just feel like I want to hear from the folks that actually live it. And I know that as far as my acting work is concerned, I gain the most insight from the folks that have really lived it. And that's not to devalue what these other folks do. It's tremendously important. It's the most collaborative art out there and, and everyone has real, real value. But for me, as far as like information, as far as what informs my performance, it's the folks that have actually lived it. They've actually experienced things. It's funny, something happened. The moment you started to answer that question, I saw you sort of in the windup of the answer have this, um, this trepidation about how to articulate how you feel in a way that you think will be palatable. This stuff is super sensitive and we're making a show, like people on all sides of this thing have lost their lives, they've lost their careers, they've lost their freedom, their rights have been violated. Like, it's really sacred and it's really sensitive. And I think the trepidation that you see in me and the hesitancy and why I don't wanna sort of misspeak on this is that I really, really genuinely have real empathy and real love for the people on all sides of this thing. And I really don't want to alienate anyone. The only thing that I know doesn't work and the only thing that I really wanna alienate is the absolute steadfast rigidity in saying, those guys are the bad guys. I think that that's cowardice. And I think, again, we're making a show about police corruption in the height of the anti-police movement. You talk about my podcast, one of the biggest things that sort of fueled it and ignited it for me was, you know, in the wake of George Floyd, you know, I, I when that sort of came up and the, the movement and the uprising, you know, I went out there and, and I protested. I also saw on TV, I saw people throwing bottles at police officers. And, and yes, they were like masks, they were in riot gear, whatever that was, but each one of those people is a human being. That each one of those people is somebody's mom or dad, brother, sister, son or daughter. And like that really fucking affected me. Trust me, man, like I understand anger. Like I understand rage and I understand what, you know, watching what happened to George Floyd, what, you, you know, what, what that brought up in me. But I, it, it was important to me to not say, all police are bad. I would say that about any group. And so every time that I went out and protested, I also would stop by Newton Division. I would go, you know, say hello to my friends down there and I would show some support down there as well. That was really important to me. 
So if I'm trepidatious about this and if I'm hesitant, I don't think that anybody deserves to be flippant about this. We're talking about, you know, real shit. And the one thing I'm enormously proud of about We Own the City is I can say with my head held high that there was a real genuine effort to tell the truth with that show and to respect the truth. And that's the only way to do a story like that. That's the way I want to do it. And, and I, I really do think we did. You mentioned a few times how you know anger and, and aggression. Mm-hmm. You're born in D.C., but grow up in a place called Cabin John, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Your father was a corporate attorney who you said liked animals more than people. <laughs> You're the middle of three children. Your mother, in contrast, loved people. She worked as a social worker. <laughs> yep, that's right. You had this rather tranquil upbringing in, in a suburban home, which you seemed to immediately rebel against the moment you could walk. Mm-hmm. You said in GQ in 2016, one of my first memories is of a kid picking on my little brother. My brother was in diapers, and I remember punching this kid in the face and realizing, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. It was my job to be the tough guy, the troublemaker. Why was that your job? Oh, man, I, th- I think I genuinely believe that like every person, and especially I think every boy has his own sort of relationship with violence. And I think that for many in this country, the relationship sort of starts and finishes, and maybe this is a healthy thing, in the sort of first stage where they're just always scared of it. It's always something that just like scares them. They have no facility with it. They have no real experience in it. It's always something they want to avoid at all costs. And I think that there's real potential good and bad from having that kind of relationship with it. I think some people go a little bit further with it. It either scares them so much or intrigues them so much, or it causes them so much shame that they want to break through it in some way and they want to start experiencing it for themselves. And um, it's a beautiful book called uh, Townie by Andre the Third, which I think is like the best examination, I think, of, of a sort of masculinity and, and fatherhood and, and man's relationship with violence. But you know what he talks about is like a membrane. It's about, it's a memoir and it's about being this kid who's sort of picked on and he's faced with the kind of all this kind of violence in his life and he's constantly afraid of it and then all of a sudden he sort of like pokes through this membrane and he finally starts to fight back but then after a while he trains and trains and trains and he becomes the perpetrator himself and he becomes the monster until then he pokes through that membrane realizes that and then he eventually becomes an artist uh, he, he figures out a way to sort of utilize and and transfer the fire of his rage and the fire of his anger and that violence into art and into positivity. And look, man, you said it. I had every opportunity as a kid. I always had a nose for trouble since I was little. I always wanted to be with the craziest kids, the roughest kids. I always wanted to be in the craziest corners of the city. I always was super attracted to it. I think because it scared the shit out of me. You know, my mom, who was a social worker, you know, she always talked about this thing called identifying with the aggressor. You know, like when I was a little boy, I was fascinated by Charles Manson. You know, for me, there was no such thing as the idea of this like crazy hippie who killed people and painted with their blood was such a foreign thing growing up in D.C. It was like so foreign that I was just fascinated with it. And well, I say you you were interested in Charles Manson. I grew up, you know, fascinated in Michael Jordan. You know, there you go, you, dude. To each their own. To each their own. To each their own. But you're Chicago, you know. But uh, I was fascinated with Michael Jordan, too. But I think that there's something about that fear, again, that I, for better or for worse, I, I really ran towards. And, and, and I think that there's a big relationship with violence. I mean, I I remember the first time that I got mugged as a kid, there was this unbelievable amount of shame, even though it was a man that mugged me. I was a kid and I remember calling my dad and I just, I had so much shame. I, I felt so violated. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I've been so frustrated and angry about our justice system and why I've been able to find so much kind of commonality and really love for a lot of people who have been incarcerated and who's who are working on their own sort of rehabilitation and folks that have really explored with you know real violence and criminality just by the grace of God just by sheer luck of me being born into the family that I was born into I got into real problems you know with a law and it's something that I'm so far away from now but had I been born into a different family that would have been it for me. And I I was faced with that situation so many times in my life. And I see so many people that just made stupid mistakes, just acted out of fear, just acted out of shame, just acted out of showing off for their friends, just acted out of a stupid mistake. 
And the process that they had to go through to get themselves out of it is so deeply and unbelievably unfair. And I have so much genuine respect and reverence for folks who have gone into to that process, understanding how unfair it is, and then still being able to bring themselves out the other side. And I want to celebrate that. I want to shed a light on that. I think it's kind of all the same thing, that running towards the fear. Even at Sidwell Friends, the high school you go to, which is this kind of famous Quaker school that Chelsea Clinton, I think, went to a few years under you, you gravitated towards these dangerous people, as you said. You have this quote, I always wanted to explore the most dangerous nooks and crannies of my city and see how far I could get away with things. When you have brothers who are super high achieving, I think I pushed the boundaries because I wanted to see, would they still love me if I did this? Hmm. Do you think part of that violent streak was about love? Sure. And I, I think beyond my brothers, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a guy last night, unbelievable guy, and, and I know him through a friend of mine that grew up in DC that we used to always rival high schools. We used to get in fistfights all the time. And, you know, we saw each other sort of for the first time in a long time last night. And, you know, he, he said something to me. He said, you know, man, we grew up in sort of like the height of toxic masculinity of just when things were just so, I never thought about it that way, but I do think that there was a thing. I, I love these guys. I love my friends so much. And I think this is something that happens to young men all over the world. I think in a lot of cases, the only way to sort of show your love for each other is to get each other's backs. And whether that's street fights or whether that's something more, whether that's playing football, whatever it is, there's something real there. You know, when I was in Baltimore, you know, going out on ride-alongs every day with these cops and especially the, the sort of more aggressive unit cops. And because I remember I would talk to friends of mine about what would happen, you know, going out every night in Baltimore in the Southwest or in the Eastern. And and you talk about these stories and, and it's like, you can't talk about it with folks that weren't there. You get off of a, you know, eight, nine, 10 hour shift and all you want to do is be at the bar with those guys. And there's such love because they're putting themselves in a situation every single day where they're legitimately getting each other's back. I mean, that's what good relationships are built on. They're built on loyalty. And so you have this way of testing it, which is like, honestly, a, a very toxic way because look, it led to me getting in a ton of trouble. And in a lot of ways, look, I, it caused a lot of trauma for me and a lot of damage for me, but I, I also, I wouldn't change it for the world. But that quote about your brothers mm -hmm. is a question of, will they still love me? It's a test of their love if you act a certain way. Sure. I guess I'm curious, why did you want to test that? Man, I, I, you know. This is the first time you've moved uncomfortably in your chair. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also these tight-ass <laughs> pants, bro. But, but yeah, maybe. I mean, I think because the thing I just thought of that potentially made me uncomfortable is I just thought of my own son, my oldest. I see a lot of myself in him. I, I, I see him test all the time. Do you? Yeah. And I think that the number one quality that I admire and love and, and need with people that I get extremely close with is do we have the ability to connect and reason with each other? And this little boy, since he was the youngest age, we could connect and reason with each other in the most palpable, cogent, and honest way. But then at the same time, there are times where he is, it is impossible for us to connect. Like the chasm between us, anger or emotion, something comes in and it's just like, dude, I, I it's like, where are you, man? And then I have another son, he's so much like, my brother, perfect grades, perfect athlete. And I look at my oldest and I see him constantly testing. <laughs> you know, my mom is just like, dude, you're going through it. You know what I mean? Like, the, you know, there is justice. Now because, it's your turn. Yeah, but like, I see it. It's like, do you love me? Do you know, let's test it. I think it's superhuman. You're talking about that anger and trauma that you experienced growing up. For the longest time, the only way that you knew how to channel it were through acts of violence. Until, I believe, 1995, when you graduate high school and attend Skidmore College in upstate New York. There you were playing catcher on the baseball team. It's my understanding that the saving grace was this mistake you made in signing up for what you believed to be was a class called Intro to Theater. What happened? <laughs> I was there to play baseball. I was there to party. I was there to basically be an asshole. And... uh I was on probation when I went there and it was like a big thing to even just be in the state of New York. And my whole freshman year, twice a week, I had to go to anger counseling and, and you know, court appointed classes, 
with other people who had been convicted of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to take the intro to theater class, which was supposed to be couple hundred people in the theater. I thought I could just be kind of fucked up and watch movies like everyone else. It was sort of like a, just get rid of your art requirement. But me sort of being the asshole I was, I mistakenly signed up for intro to acting, which was a very serious 10 person acting class with a woman named Alma Becker who ended up really saving my life. And it really is a, a, a testament to the power of teaching and the power of what happens when an adult really takes belief in a kid. Before she believed in you, there was this first assignment mm -hmm. where she asked students to bring a prized possession, you know, that meant a lot to them and, and tell the class why it meant something to them. Do you remember what you brought in? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, everybody had to bring in an assignment and, and sort of share this super important possession with the rest of the class. We were all sitting on the floor of the, the studio, which I thought was so ridiculous because there was perfectly good chairs there. But, you know, it was a theater class and I'd never been around theater people before. And people were sharing these possessions and just emoting in the most open. I'd never really seen anything like it before. One young woman brought her blues traveler CD that her boyfriend had given her. She's crying her eyes out. One brought like, I think a pipe of their grandfather's. I just couldn't believe how seriously they were taking it. And I forgot to bring anything in. And it was so embarrassing because we were sitting in that damn circle and I'm looking at the clock and I'm listening to these things. And I know eventually this fucking thing is going to come to me. And I got nothing, man. I got nothing. And like, even in my full assholery of the day to be like, yeah, I forgot. After these people are just sharing everything, it just wouldn't have worked. And it came to me and I grabbed my catcher's glove and I just kind of like launched into this story uh, about how my mom had bought me this glove like on her deathbed and, and I just like lost myself in the story. And my mom's alive and well in DC and, and still alive. And the story just took me to a place that I'd never gone before. I, and I, I got super detailed. I talked about, you know, having a catch with my brother and talking about mom. And it was like, I saw it and I was crying my eyes out and everyone in the room was crying their eyes out. And I, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. What's crazy is that moment, which I ended up for years having so much shame about, because it was just lying, you know? Alma, at that point, was literally, and, and is, you know, besides my mom and my wife, the most important woman in my life, without a doubt. And I had so much shame about what I did, but that moment in that room, launching into this bullshit lie, was actually the exact kind of acting that I love doing, that I want to do, that I try to get into that pocket of, where you're going on pure imagination, letting your emotion flow. And even though it was all bullshit and all a lie and it was shrouded in shame, it was totally fucking honest at the same time. It's crazy. That moment changed my life. And not only did it change your life, but it moved almost so much that she had faith in you as an actor to then later encourage you, as you said, to go to Moscow and study at the Moscow Art Theater. She helped you apply in 1999 at age 23, a decade after the fall of communism. You moved there. How would you describe the culture of that program? Look, to be a teacher in Moscow, to be an acting teacher, is the absolute highest honor you can get as an actor. The highest honor. So in America, where so many go to teach acting because their careers didn't work out. And so that fosters, I think in a lot of cases, and this is definitely not across the board, but I think there's a lot of acting teachers in this country that are trying to validate their own careers or lack thereof. There's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of grandstanding. There's a lot of coddling. There's a lot of like, let's make this a safe place. It's not like that there. It's very, very hard to get in. It's very, very hard to stay in. Your head is constantly on the chopping block in a way that, you know, both collegiate and, you know, some professional sports that I engage in didn't even come close to. And it really fit with me. And I think above all else, these teachers there, I just respected the shit out of them. And my three main acting teachers, they came up in communism when public gatherings were outlawed, where theater was the only place where the public could gather and they had to gather in state-sanctioned theater. So the Moscow Art Theater was a state-sanctioned theater. Artists were executed. Artists were jailed. That's the theater that I came up with. My three main teachers, they did a play called Cinzano in abandoned buildings, in subway tunnels. They did it at the risk of imprisonment. Every time they put on that play, had they been caught, 
they would have been sent to jail. Anyone who came to see that play would have been sent to jail for going to watch that play, but they did it once a month in secret locations around the city. They still did it. While I was there, they were still performing that play 10 years after communism. Now they're hugely decorated teachers and, and stars in their own right. Those were the guys that I was learning from. There's this muscularity in Russian theater, and yet a lot of Russians believe that acting is actually a feminine profession. Absolutely. Which requires the male actor to get in touch with their feminine side. What do you make of that juxtaposition? Oh, man, it's, it, it, it's the crux of what's wrong with masculinity in this country. If you don't know you're feminine, if you don't realize the balance between that, you're not a man. As you can see by looking at me, I never fought it. it, it you're beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think, <laughs> you know, for me, the term that masculinity has been so bastardized and so fucked with in this country, and it's so born out of, I think, fear and again, shame. And again, it's, I totally believe in discipline. I believe in being able to stand up for yourself. I believe in being able to handle yourself, but I believe equally in your ability to have empathy for people, to be kind to people, to be open, to always aspire to be as humble as you possibly can, to crave opportunities where you don't know, to crave opportunities where you're the weakest person in the room, where you know the least in the room, to always look for people that you can learn from, to understand that in every single person, man, woman, child, or animal, you have something to learn from them, you have something to gain from them, not to think you have all the answers. And I think what you're talking about, that they say it's a feminine profession. It's funny that there's a saying in, in Russia, men look in the mirror to see what's right. Women look in the mirror to see what's wrong. And you look at men and women in the mirrors, and I, I hate gross generalizations, but that shit is true. My wife was a decades long ICU trauma nurse. My brother is a surgeon. They'll tell you a million times. It's the young guy who comes in full of tattoos and muscles who in the operating room is screaming his ass off, crying, begging for mercy. And it's the older woman that comes in that has strength unlike anything you've ever seen before. And I just, for some reason, we like don't associate that in our country. We think it's about being a man. And like, I don't know, I, I, I think, you know, once I got much more into martial arts and especially boxing and, and got to spend real time among real fighters and got into fighting myself, uh, you know, in a real way, not in a bullshit, shame-filled, jokey street fight way, but, you know, actually, you know, getting in the ring with real fighters and, and understood honor and humility. It's always the guys that lead with kindness and that are gracious. Those are the guys that you, you got to look out for. You know, the ones that talk tough are, are not that. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
this one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. When you leave Moscow and come back to America, on that first night back home, mm -hmm. you meet Erin, right? Yeah. Who would later become your wife. Yep. You mentioned that she was a trauma nurse. Her job carried the two of you forward when you were having a hard time finding work. In every way. Emotionally, economically, every way. Still does. Yep. Thank you, Erin. Mm-hmm. I'll thank her for you. Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Love you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> She'll never listen. She doesn't listen to anything I do. Doesn't well, really, hopefully yeah. this one. It's going to be... It's, 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 yeah. right <laughs> when you return to America, you go to Harvard's Institute of Theater Training while also spending time in New York City, couch surfing, sometimes selling pot, driving a roofless Jeep every morning at 5 a.m. <laughs> to open auditions at Actors' Equity in mm -hmm. Midtown. <clears throat> you make it through this period, but mm -hmm. I want to go to 2006 when your brother Tom bought you a ticket to go to Los Angeles. Mm. What was that first year like? You know, I, acting for me had been a very pure but also very sort of charmed thing for me. Uh, I had no real access or exposure to anybody who was a professional actor. I had no ambitions to be a TV or a film actor. I wanted to do theater for the rest of my life. And, you know, once I had started at Skidmore, then all the way up through Russia and then all the way through the ART in Boston, all signs were like pointing that this was going to really work out. It was the first time in my life I was getting approval. You know, I played some sports, but not that well, you know, Division Three baseball. Like I, I had never really done anything that made people say, holy shit, in, 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 in a good anything, way. Yeah, where adults gave you attention in a positive way. positive way i could get tons of it in a negative way and i was always holy shit in that way i could make other people be like oh that guy's crazy that guy will do shit no one else would do but now i was channeling that in a really really positive way and it was really working it sounds crazy but i gained a connection to something much higher than me a spirituality where i started praying a lot and i had a connection with something much bigger. And I really felt like, shit, man, you're you're on this earth to sort of do this. So when you came to LA, you believed this is going to work out. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. And it was just an unbelievably like rude awakening. How so? <laughs> 
I'd always heard about sort of the rejection and how hard it was to kind of like make it as an actor, but I'd never experienced anything like it. I really believed that I was good. I really believed that I could tap into things that a lot of folks couldn't. I believed that I was special. That's dangerous, but it's also fuel. You have to believe that. You know, when you're coming up, you have to latch on to any bit of somebody saying, hey, you're good or, or, or believe in yourself or a feeling that you have on stage where you know you're actually reaching somebody or you're gripping an audience. You, you know, th those moments are sacred and, and they're fuel to keep going. But my moments over the years that I got out of school, they were farther and fewer between. It just wasn't happening. It was rejection after rejection after rejection. And I was really acting out. What did that acting out look like? Oh, man, I was uh, all over the place. I mean, it culminated in in 2009, you know, getting in, in serious trouble once again. And that was sort of like, you know, finally my rock bottom, which honestly, man, like if, you know, I was getting into kind of real trouble from 1994 to 2009. I mean, dude, that literally is the definition of privilege that I could get into that much trouble for that many years and not suffer really, really serious consequences. The night of July 3rd, 2009, you're in Venice. You're walking your dog, boss, and as you walk your dog, this man who's hosting a kind of house party, I think on his porch, calls the dog over and says, this is my dog. You grab the dog back. He says, why did you take my dog? Then what happens? Before that happened, strangely, there was something going on with me that night. There was an energy that I had that was not right. What do you mean by that? I remember walking down in Venice that night already, and there was just something swirling about. Normally, when you talk about like sort of major events in your life, you kind of remember it after the major event happens. For me, it started way before. There was something going on. It might sound hokey, it might sound like bullshit, but it's the truth. When I went to this street corner, for some reason, I laid eyes on that guy. And you know, you say that, it's like, okay, so was this premeditated? Like, was it, you know, it's like, I'm saying that now. I laid eyes on that guy. There's something about that guy that I, I just saw. And he was, you know, 150 feet away from me. Then there was an older couple playing the didgeridoo, some people in their 60s. And that guy, as if it was like a, a movie, you know, I, I happened to see the people playing the didgeridoo. And that one guy walked over to the woman in the couple, picked up the didgeridoo and put it in his crotch as if she was like playing his crotch. And her husband was completely humiliated, couldn't do anything, and they packed up their stuff and they walked away. Right at that moment is when he looked at my dog and said, oh my God, and called my dog over. So that's when that happened. And then, you know, the guys, after he said, that's my dog, they started to follow me. And yeah, I felt a hand on my back and, you know, I turned around and, and I hit him. And then it was just kind of on. You know, his friends started to rush me. I put my back against a tree and just was sort of fighting them off at the best that I could. But that guy, he ended up getting knocked out standing up and then he fell down and hit his head on the pavement. The police came and it was terrible. When they took me to jail, he, you know, it's still not woken up. So I you're sitting on a bench in the Pacific Division Station. They have you handcuffed. You have to pee really badly. What's going through your head? It was a conversation with whatever's up there. It was clear from my heart to whatever's up there. And I just begged for help. I begged to help me get through this. I said, look, I know what I did here. And I know how terrible this is. And I know that if you can just wake this guy up, if you can just get me out of this, I'm 100% done. I am done with the insanity. I'm done with not being completely devoted to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I'm done not being completely devoted to my work. I'm done with all the bullshit, with all the pretending, with all the wildness, with the violence, with drinking. I'm walking away from that guy. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it entailed, but I knew that I could do it. But I also, before I had that conversation, I had a conversation with something else that was also as clear as day that said, look, if he doesn't wake up, I gotta go the other way now. And I got to let all that go. I got to let the, the Sidwell go and the mom and dad go and the aspirations of being an actor go and whatever's going on with Aaron go and the hopes of ever having a family go and this sacred thing that I found called acting, it's done. And I am going to be the darkest version of myself. And it was 
clear as day that I knew that that is what needed to happen if I had to go into that system. And I knew it, but please don't make me go that way. Please help me from that, I promise you. And it was just clear. And literally right at that moment, they came over to me. The cops did the whole time say, he's not waking up, man. You know, this is gonna be bad. They came over and said, he just woke up. You know, a year later, July 3rd, 2010, I was in Georgia doing The Walking Dead. I hadn't touched any alcohol in a year. And I, I wrote a letter to that guy that I hit. And I told him that I knew that night it wasn't him that, that I was attacking, it was me. You said once in an interview, that was me that I knocked out. That was the old version of me. I'd seen a brashness, a disrespect in him that I'd seen in myself. And I was done with that guy. Who emerges on the other side of that? I mean, that's what's so scary for anyone. And I tell people that all the time. Hardest thing about change is you don't know where you're going. The first step that you gotta take in any kind of behavioral change is you gotta see that there's a problem and you gotta be done with it. You know, they talk about in Moscow, the, 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 the four stages of behavioral development, right? And the first step is always unconscious incompetence. You're walking around, you're living your life, you don't know it, but you're fucking up. And every day you're fucking up. And even if it's just like you're sitting with bad posture, you don't realize it, you just sit with bad posture every day. And then the next step, the most vital step for change is conscious incompetence to realize, holy shit, I sit the wrong fucking way. I'm behaving the wrong way. This is not good for me. I have a problem. Huge, vital, you'll never change without that step. The next step is conscious competence. You know, if I really think about it and I really put effort into it, I can sit with my back straight. I can stop engaging in these kinds of behaviors. I can start living right. If I really think and I really work and I really get the tools and I dedicate my life to changing, I can do it. And ultimately you get to a place of unconscious competence where you don't have to think about it anymore. You're just that guy. And shame on me that it took me that long. But truth is when it happens, it happens. And fuck, man, you're so blessed if you can see it, if you can feel it, and then you act on it and you have to, you have to. The scary thing is, is that when you change, you're ripping out a whole part of yourself and you don't know what goes in there. So you gotta start filling it with other things. You gotta start filling it with art, with love, with reading, with what, you know, what positive things that you can fill in that hole. But I didn't know how to be the not wild guy, the guy that went out all night, the guy that, you know, was ready to do whatever at the drop of the hat. I didn't know how to be that guy, but I knew I wouldn't do that. So I had to start filling it with other things. And it happened remarkably fast. You know, The Walking Dead came and, you know, The Walking Dead to this day, you know, in a lot of ways was really the best job I ever had for so many reasons. I needed that job when it happened. I needed to be around those people, to be a part of that family, to be around young artists who were raising kids, who were committed to their husbands and wives. And then it was such a blessing to, to get killed off that show and to be able to walk away from that and to be able to have that foundation. And then once again, there's change. What do I do now? I finally get on a show. It finally hits. And then they kill the shit out of me. What do I do? And that fear thing, I mean, I think that's really where it kind of started in, in a really positive way. Your career's not over. This is an amazing opportunity. You got to fall in love in this business with the not knowing. But it sucks as an actor, right? You don't know when your next job's gonna be. You don't know when the phone's gonna ring. But also your phone could ring any second. That next job could be out there. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing of a ride if you look at it that way. So you fill this hole with, with work, with marriage, three kids, a lot of dogs, some anger management, some therapy. Eventually you do get a call from the director that I think was an early inspiration to you and Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in Wolf of Wall Street. I think it's a scene that probably changed the course of your career in many ways. And I thought uh, if you're open to it, we can watch it together. Oh, cool, man. This is John Bernthal as Brad in Wolf of Wall Street. That's the attitude. You can sell anything, can sell, sell, anything. sell me this fucking pen right here. You can sell anything, sell that. Go ahead. Sell me that pen. Can I finish eating first? I need it tonight. Brad, show them how it's done. Boom. Sell me that pen, watch, go on. Let me sell this fucking pen. That's my boy right there. This pen. Fucking right. sell anything. Why'd you do me a favor? Why'd you name down that napkin for me? I don't have a pen. Exactly. Supply and demand, my friend. You know what I'm saying? Shit. He's creating urgency. Oh, you get him to want to buy the stuff. Convince them it's something that they need. You know, you know what I mean? And that's the thing. 
all nuns are lesbians. What the fuck are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. Think, think about it. They can't keep a dude, so they gotta start. <laughs> okay. Four times, Kimmy. Four times. <laughs> I mean, look, man. I, I there's so much to that, you know, that I see. I, I think above and beyond anything else, it, it, it's like Scorsese sets a symphony. Everyone there is so free. Everyone there is feels like they're 100 feet tall, and everyone there is urged and compelled to surprise each other. It made me trust my ability to kind of rework and bring my own ideas in, because the whole idea of the ketchup bottle was just an idea that I had. And unlike so many jobs and, I, and so many projects where actors are, are made to feel like you got to sort of pitch and lawyer for your ideas, it's not like that with Marty. Just come in and do it. And he surrounded yourself with such a talented crew and, and cast and, and background actors that you have this environment where you can just do things and people will just react to them. That's one level. I just knew that I wanted to play the annoyance of that scene and listening to these motherfuckers and I could physicalize it by just saying to the woman who played the waitress that day, who, by the way, was a Broadway actress, you know, like that's who's doing background work. I say, hey, just do me a favor. Bring me my cheeseburger last. So I'm already pissed off. I don't have my cheeseburger. I got to listen to these fucking people. Then I said to the prop guy, I just need an empty bottle of ketchup. So now I'm listening to these fucking assholes. I don't have a cheeseburger. They got a cheeseburger, but where's my fucking ketchup? So the whole scene, I'm asking for the ketchup. Nobody knows I'm going to do that. I don't need to tell anybody I'm going to do that. Scorsese doesn't know you're going to do Hells that. no. No. You don't need to tell him. He's watching everything. And then on the way to work that day, Leo was walking to set. And on the conversation that he had with the security guard for the day was, hey, man, I had a job interview with a real Wolf of Wall Street, with a real Jordan Belfort. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He, what he did is he handed me a pen, said, sell me that pen. Leo told us that right before we started shooting the scene. He told us that story. And in that take, he just happened to bring out the pen and said, sell me this pen. So it was all improvised, all live, fully working together. And then when I threw the ketchup bottle on the ground, everybody just reacted to it. And then the, without any cue, the background actress who's playing the waitress runs over with a new bottle of ketchup. It was every day, every scene, every take. And I felt with Marty, I, I just never felt, you know, he is, he's the mountaintop. He's my favorite director. He's the best of all time. His movies are my favorite. And he saw me. He saw every little thing that I did, every little idea and his ability to make things so easy and flow so naturally and to capture the electricity of spontaneity while also preserving how sacred and special, you know, those moments between action and cut are. My theory on it is anyone in art, and I think in business, I think in pretty much anything, anyone who tries to control you, tries to hamper you, tries to manipulate you, who tries to hinder you, there's no more of a telltale sign of mediocrity than that. You'll never get beyond mediocre. It might kind of work, but it will never be great. But the greats, the great athletes, the great musicians, the great directors, the great performers, the great business people, I really believe are people who can inspire, who can bring in the great people, and then who can let them fly and, and urge them to fly. And literally the meter on how happy I am on a set is directly proportional to how free the set is and how inspired the set is. And that's not just with actors, it's with every crew member. Every single person knows that their opinion and their art and their process and their work is valued. It's encouraged that just slaughterize, obliterate hierarchy on sets. It is the downfall. And the second you go on and you have actors acting like they're more important or director acting like he's King Dick, second you see that to me, I know this shit ain't gonna work. There's leadership and there's people who say, hey, come with me, follow me, watch this. But the great leaders also give that up and say, okay, now I'm following you, what's up? And, uh, it changed the way I work and really made me fall in love with screen acting in a way that I thought I would never, it, it would never happen, not in the way that I, that, that I love theater acting. The arc of this is really remarkable because you come of age watching Robert De Niro in Scorsese films, expressing and articulating an anger and rage that you only understood in violence, in physical combat. And you saw this actor in De Niro that captured that energy, that rage, and used it for art. 35 years later, you find yourself 
in a Scorsese film. Once you've reached that pinnacle, how do your dreams change? Wow. I mean, I, I, you know, I have this tattoo on my, my wrist with Alma's name, and it's the symbol of the Moscow Art Theater. And it's a symbol of a seagull. And the seagull is a very famous Chekhov play, and it was the first play of the Moscow Art Theater. That's why the seagull is their symbol. And what the seagull represents to me is the play the seagull is about all these artists, the health or lack thereof of the relationships they have with their dreams. And you've got successful writers, aspiring writers, successful actors, aspiring actors. They're all in love with the wrong people. And it's all this just sort of like crazy comedy tragedy that ultimately ends in the lead character committing suicide. And, you know, he's in love with this woman, Nina, that he calls her seagull. And what he does is he shoots a seagull out of the sky and gives it to her. And to me, the whole point of that play is that the only way you can have a healthy relationship with your dream is if it's flying in front of you and you're chasing it. It's never about attaining it. You gotta be able to follow it no matter which way it goes. There's no such thing as having a pet seagull. You can't touch a seagull, you can't attain it. The only way you can attain it is if you kill it, but then it's dead. So the healthy relationship is it's flying and you're following it. That's how I live my life. I've found days on set since then that were just as fulfilling, but I'm looking for more, you know? I'm, I'm hungry to challenge myself deeper. I'm hungry to scare myself more. And I'm, I'm really hungry to create my own stuff. I'm just as hungry as I was, you know, as you say in 2006, when I was crying into my pillow saying this is never gonna happen. But I think it's in a much healthier way. There's, there's an excitement behind it. I'm enormously lucky and enormously blessed. As you move forward, you've renegotiated that relationship to chasing your dreams, mm -hmm. to guilt and shame about the past. I keep thinking about your three kids. Mm. You were talking about them in the beginning. And you and I are talking on this week that is hard to even give language to it. 100%. What's happened in Texas. And, I, and I'm sure as a father, you've mm. gone back and thought, how do I protect my kids? What do I say? And I guess as we leave, what do you say to your kids to move forward? You know, every, every morning that, that I drop my, my kids off at school, you know, I always say the same thing. Be bold, be brave, be beautiful, and be kind. I say to them every day. You know, we failed, man. Like, we failed. You know, we failed. We failed. We failed this earth, and we failed these kids. And there's every generation feels like things are spiraling out of control. Things move faster and faster and faster. My hope is that somehow through art, through connectivity, and through the universality that comes with how connected we are now, that somehow kindness can spread. And that somehow the quadrating off, the isolation that is like gripping all of us right now is somehow delivered into the zeitgeist. And I know this is very weird, but like as uncool, it's not cool to just be staring at your phone all day. You gotta go out and connect. You gotta go out and seek relationships and find empathy. I think the kids, you know, they gotta see the world. They gotta see other cultures. I just came back from Colombia. It seems like there's a lot less tension on the streets. There's a lot less posturing. There's a lot less worrying about how everybody else is doing what they believe. And there's a lot more folks trying to connect. I think you're right. But that thing you mentioned about how we failed this moment, that failure seems to weigh on you. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. It, you know, for me, I don't know if you have children, man, but like something happens. It's like, you don't, I don't matter anymore, man. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, like I, I exist for them. Like I do. I give anything up. I give my life up in a heartbeat for them. And I know the answer's got to come from them. And it's crazy to be in this country and to know that you're providing a life for your kids. You're, you're leaving them in a place that's worse than, than what you had. So I think we got to prepare them. And I think that like that means in all ways. I don't shield my kids from stuff. My like parenting style for better or for worse is to try to be with them through everything, to be by their side, sometimes in front of them, sometimes behind them, sometimes by their side, but to say, hey, look, this is what this is. This is daddy's perspective on this. This is how I've handled it. These are the mistakes I've made in this. You're gonna have to make your own choices. This is what I think you should do. You're gonna have to figure this out. But fucking be brave and be bold and be beautiful and be kind, like be kind. 
You mentioned uh, kindness and empathy throughout this. I'm torn between wanting to believe that those qualities can spread and then feeling rather hopeless about that. Why, why do you feel hopeless about them? One thing that shook me is that in mid-March of 2020, the world comes to a halt. We go through this pandemic. Throughout 2020 into early 2021, there is a large cultural conversation about empathy, connectivity, mm-hmm. on the other side of this, being more decent to each other, being more grateful for the time we have with one another. Mm-hmm. All these big ideas that seemed positive and hopeful. But if I survey the last six to eight months, I think a lot of that was all talk. So that's where I don't know if our words, in this case, your words, which I think I do believe in, in my core, that do move me, that I want to have faith in. Sometimes I think, will they just remain as words? Mm -hmm. And I hope they don't. Look, man, for better or for worse in this conversation, what we decided to kind of focus on a lot was my history with fucking up, making bad decisions, even though I had every opportunity in the world not to, I kept fucking up. I kept being violent. I kept betraying people. I kept hurting people. I kept violating my family, violating my own sense, getting breaks, getting out of shit, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. And believe me, man, every single time I got sent to the principal's office, every single time my dad picked me up from a police station or jail, every single time I did something wrong, believe me, man, I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'll never do it again. Words, empty words. Were they empty? Maybe. Did I believe them then for that moment, that little fragment? Maybe. But just like anything else, it's a scale. And look, it's a scary fucking idea. But I think, man, you know, this isn't going to be the last one in, in, in all these ways. But you better believe, like, I believe that humanity at the end, there will be a point where we say we can't, we can't take it anymore. Who knows when that moment's going to be? But I believe it is inherent in humanity that there is a rock bottom. I, I just, I, I, I've seen it with so many people. I've seen it with so many situations. There is a rock bottom. You've seen it with yourself. I've seen it with myself. I've experienced it. And hopefully it's not, it's not about being too late for us. It's about the next generation, the generation after that. And, and, and it's understanding that we got a responsibility to something that's way bigger than ourselves. And you can't make those kinds of changes. You can't change anybody, but you can change yourself. Like you can, you can. Well then, I guess I have to thank you for um, being living proof. No oh boy, that some change can happen, that one can transform, and I hope you're right, John Bernthal. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure's all mine, man. Thank you. our show special thanks to chase laner sloan kessler narrative pr hbo max and of course john bernthal you can watch his new show we own this city on hbo max you can listen to his podcast real ones with john bernthal wherever you do your listening and you can watch him in sharp stick the new film from lena dunham later this summer We'll include links to all of that and more at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's talk, I'd recommend others with Bill Hader, Kate Blanchett, Matthew McConaughey, Questlove, Laura Dern, and Tessa Thompson. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. 
Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Jenix Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Emma Mead. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Paulina Suarez, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with David Sedaris. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.